0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 53 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some surprising results of the swing to working from home as previously resistant older people are taking up the tech challenge. We revisit the growing scandal around South African insurers who are refusing to honor business interruption cover with the owner of an 81-year-old Drakensberg resort. There's some lessons from an old-age home on how to keep elderly patients safe and we close off tonight's episode with a quite brilliant exposé from our partners at The Wall Street Journal, who've been digging deeply into what happened in New York, providing a casebook of what not to do when dealing with a novel coronavirus. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headlines, the South African coronavirus curve continues to rise exponentially, with new daily infections breaking above 7,000 for the first time on Saturday. The World Health Organization reported on Sunday that the 189,000 new cases worldwide of the previous 24 hours were a new record, with South Africa among several countries setting fresh peaks. South Africa's new daily infections are now in the global top five alongside Russia, and surpassed only by the far more populous United States, which is now into a distinct second wave, Brazil and India. While the rate of growth is of concern, South Africa's total cases of 140,000 and mortalities of two and a half thousand are still well behind the hardest hit nations. The US has had just under 130,000 deaths from 2.6 million confirmed infections. We take a close look later in the episode at what can be learned from mistakes made in the country's epicenter of New York. Second highest in the world is Brazil, where 57,000 people have succumbed to the virus from a total of 1.35 million cases. The UK, which appears to now have the virus somewhat under control with a modest 36 deaths yesterday, is still third on the global list with 43,500 mortalities from 311,000 cases. It's not only in the United States where societal fault lines have been prized open by COVID-19. Brazilian activists erected a thousand crosses in front of the Brazilian parliament to represent the people who have died, an indictment on a political leadership which initially wrote off the pandemic as simply a bad flu. Here's a report from Reuters.
1: A thousand crosses for thousands of victims. The memorial laid in front of Brazil's Congress honors those who have died from COVID-19 while denouncing President Jair Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic in a country that remains largely split on the matter. Brazil, which has the second highest virus death toll after the United States, reported over 30,000 new cases on Sunday, according to its health ministry. The virus's rapid spread has eroded support for right-wing Bolsonaro while also raising fears of economic collapse after years of anemic growth. Detractors and supporters of the president have been gathering in cities across the country. Anti-Bolsonaro protesters on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro clashed with police. One demonstrator was spotted being hit with batons as another was arrested. The Stop Bolsonaro protest was staged both online and on the streets, in Brazil and beyond. But as anger rose amongst detractors, so too did solidarity from supporters. Back in the country's capital, Brasilia, Bolsonaro backers gathered to honour him. Dozens of people draped in Brazilian flags waved banners and honked at passing traffic, a stark symbol of the polarisation in Latin America's largest country. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
0: The COVID-19-inspired lockdowns and social distancing regulations have seen millions of people working on their computers from home. As you'll hear in this fascinating discussion with Discovery's Chief Technology Officer Derek Wilcox and the group's Chief Information Security Officer Zaid Parak, it was a huge logistical exercise for them and for many other companies. But there's also a dark side for those who do not protect themselves properly against criminals who've spotted a new cybercrime opportunity.
2: Typically, before COVID, we would have had about 1,500 people working from home on a daily basis around the world. And we moved within a two-week period to more than 8,000 regularly working from home, and certainly over 11,000 who've logged on from home occasionally. And that was a a major achievement for us. I think what it demonstrated was that having that base of the 1500 had taught us the lessons we needed to know, and we were able to use the same technology, the same security protocols, and get people home very, very successfully. I think probably the most remarkable area for me has been that we now have over 2,000 voice-based contact center agents working from home. If you'd asked even the most optimistic technologists a few years ago, they would have said a voice based contact center agent could never work from home. And now we have that as a normal way of doing business.
0: So presumably they have other contact points as well. If they are, when you say contact, is it call centers in effect?
2: Yes, we've sent contact center agents, call center agents home and predominantly they are still servicing their clients through the voice me- mechanism, although they do also have chat functions and email servicing to augment that, but they're able to make perfectly clear voice calls from their home locations.
0: Derek, do you use any of the -the off-the-shelf software solutions like Slack or Google Hangouts or other things that generally would be used in a smaller business?
2: We primarily use Microsoft Teams and everything that goes with that for our internal collaboration. And the reason for that is that it integrates with our security technology very effectively, which makes it easier for us to set up and manage meetings. Slack is quite widely used in our development teams, but is not used elsewhere in the business. Slack has fantastic features as far as integration is concerned, but it is quite hard for a non-technologist to get their mind around.
0: Mm. Well, let's bring in the Parik now, because... The next point of this discussion, so it has to go to people working from home who haven't done so in the past. It must be a nightmare, at least initially, where you're trying to keep the data and the, and the whole system secure.
3: Yes. So, so thank you, Alex. So look, I think with Discovery, we were actually quite lucky. I mean, since we about two years ago, three years ago, when we started moving into our wonderful new building, we already started with the adoption of remote work and working from home. So by far and large, our technology and security capabilities were really set up to support remote working, just not at this scale. So when lockdown started, we scrambled to increase capacity and get the the bells and whistles going. But I think by and large, from a capability perspective, we were sorted. The people change was a lot harder. And I think right now, it's literally what a time to be an attacker with all the uncertainty, the situation going on everywhere. Spam and phishing attacks have risen tremendously in tenfold, and that's Primarily the highest sort of attack vector that's being used right now. So on our side, it was more around the people factor and awareness and getting our staff to almost be more cognizant of what they're doing and how they interacting with the systems more than actually enabling the technology. Do you have a list of do's and don'ts? Oh yes, and it keeps on growing. It started off with a five-point dos and don'ts, and now as the world is changing and more collaboration tools are coming on the market, and people wanting to use more and more tools, uh, that list is growing quite, <laughs> quite a bit.
0: So when someone goes home, and uh, from the eleven thousand people who've at least logged in at some point in time within the group, do they have to have certain technology or certain protections on? their computer before they can do so? So
3: All our endpoints are managed with our security capabilities. So the majority of our staff are connecting with discovery-owned and managed devices. For those that don't, we've uh, created VPN capabilities where if they do use their own devices, our data is still protected once they connect to our network.
0: Derek, from a more broad perspective, the movement of the business towards digital, one of the conversations I had with a colleague of yours said that you had a a meeting or a launch where you had 7,000 people attending remotely. Now, that too is something, I guess, beyond our wildest dreams. You'd have to hire a number of Santon convention centres to get that number of people into a room in the past. Uh, Forget about the other transport logistics and so on. Has that brought new challenges?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's been a significant opportunity for us. and actually been much bigger than the employee change, although not. Probably not as widely visible. Uh, we have seen with members and brokers a significant change to digital. And interestingly enough, it's primarily been with the Gen X or older people born before 1980. I saw last week the Cap Gemini 2020 World Insurance Report, and it's very interesting to me that the millennials have increased their use of digital technology over the last two years from about 50% to just over 60% as their preferred mechanism for interacting with insurers. But the uh, Gen X's have gone from 30% to over 60%. And now you've got Gen X and Millennial having the same propensity to use technology or digital as their first choice for interacting with the insurance industry worldwide. And I think we see that in our member base. The number of people that use the app, our various web portals, is growing tremendously. And particularly we're seeing our intermediaries really wakening to this technology. And I think for them, the alternative was to stay at home and not be able to engage with their clients at all. So it really has been a fantastic enabler for them to keep those client relationships and to keep their business growing during a very tough time when a lot of people are looking for that independent financial advice or concerned about their retirement, their insurance coverage, even their banking capabilities. So that really has been quite a boon for us. And then, as you correctly said, the uh, whole area of conferencing has grown tremendously. And just have one interesting data point for you, in discovery on average every day, just over 8,000 employees now working regularly from home use video conferencing technology between one and a half
0: and two hours each. Inside
4: COVID 19 from BizNews.
0: Among the guests featured in the BizNews Rational Radio webinar today was William van der Riet, second generation owner of the iconic Drakensberg Resort Cathedral Peak Hotel. His is among the hundreds of businesses whose claims for business interruption insurance are not being honored by South African insurance companies, something which is particularly galling in Funderitz's case because he has paid almost 10 million rand for this cover over the past decade. In this highlight package, you'll also hear Ryan Woolley, Chief Executive of Insurance Claims Africa, who's representing hundreds of companies who are fighting the insurers. The full interview is in Biz News Radio, either on the app or on the website.
4: We are
5: very isolated, as you're aware. So we've always had the risk of being cut off either by the road access or a situation like this. So we have gone for this specific policy for this very reason. And we took the extension and we've been paying our dues since 2009 and here we find ourselves in a situation where we need the insurers and they've turned their back on us.
0: For more than 10 years, then, you've been paying for business interruption insurance. Have you ever claimed up to this point?
5: We have never claimed on business interruption. We've had other policy claims, obviously, but not on the business interruption, and we've been paying since 2009, and we calculated that our fees had been in the region of nine and a half million to date. So they've taken our money in good faith for all these years. And here in a time of crisis, when we need them, they're not there for us. William, how much would you be claiming? Ryan Woolley's company have calculated that we are probably looking at a loss over 12 months in the region of 21 to 22 million, because our policy Was for a 12 month period from this, from the time of our first claim. So we're going to be in for about 22 million
0: thereabouts. I didn't know you were one of Ryan's clients, but it's nice that we also asked Ryan to join us today. Ryan, this sounds very unfair. Nine and a half million over 10 years. If you take the value of that cash, just deflate it. Then you'd probably easily get to 21 million. So the insurance company wouldn't really be making a big loss on Cathedral Peak Hotel. What are they saying to you? Why they won't pay?
4: So all the insurers have essentially, barring our insurance, have essentially said that that they don't see the lockdown period as being covered, and that they believe that this is an intervening cause and not what the policy was designed to cover. But it's a completely nonsensical approach. Without COVID-19, you don't have the lockdown restrictions and measures. Insurers, like William said, have chosen to ensure a notifiable disease. The insurer that he's with has got a very simply worded policy that says if there's a notifiable disease that affects the business within a 50-kilometer radius, their claim is payable. Their approach is one where they say, show us how the one or two cases that you've identified that of being positive COVID cases has directly caused your business to be interrupted or interfered with. And they're not interested in anything with regards to government restrictions or any of the interventions. We just think that they are interpreting the policy in their favor, that they are trying everything to try and get out of this. But I the wording. It's not worth saying it's written on if it doesn't get interpreted the way that William and ourselves it, Which is if you have a notifiable disease that occurs anywhere within your radius that creates fear, that creates loss of attraction or anything of the like, as well as the government's intervention and restrictions for notifiable disease, then why else, how else could the policy respond?
0: If the policy is not applicable in this case, the obvious question to them is, well, when will it be applicable? If, if it isn't with COVID-19, when are you actually going to pay out on this nine and a half million rands worth of premiums that that William has paid?
4: Absolutely. That's exactly the point, is that the way that we've interpreted it, it's the way that our children interpret it, It's the way that anybody who applies any common sense to this, a judge, I'm sure at some stage, will sit and interpret it exactly the same as we are. It's a sad indictment on the industry if we've got to wait For two to three years, and watch businesses that have been around like Williams, like Cathedral Peak, which is an institution, to see those businesses fail because insurers have not come to the party is just devastating.
0: William, you are the second generation. Did your father or your family presumably start at the hotel?
5: Yes, that's correct. My dad was a farmer originally. He used to farm in the area of Olofea's Hook Pass and then literally down about 45 k's down the valley from the hotel. And they used to go on horseback hunting up in the Drakensberg because there were no roads or anything. It was just grazing felt. And he located the landowner in the 1930s and negotiated to buy the piece of property and literally built it from the ground up. There was absolutely nothing there. In fact, they had to make the road to get to the property. And then, of course, the Second World War came along and that interrupted business and made things very difficult for them back in the early days. So, yeah, we've been there 81 years. We used to kind of joke about wouldn't the hotel be so nice with no guests and no staff with this whole place to ourselves? Little did we know that this COVID thing would come along and we would be in this situation. So it's really scary for us.
0: So 81 years, are you able to survive this?
5: Not without help. Our overheads at the moment are between 800,000 and a million rand a month with security, which we've had to keep on to protect the property, and with the various insurance policies, medical aid, UIF, etc. We've got massive overheads, and we've kind of maxed out on our credit limits at this stage, so if we don't get help soon, we're going to be in serious trouble and we'll have to try and approach the banks to get interim financing. We're still hopeful that the insurers will come to their senses and make some sort of offer on this, some negotiated settlement. And, you know, I just don't understand why the industry has not adopted a proactive approach from the beginning and said, listen, guys, we acknowledge that we are in this thing and and, um, your policy is valid, but we can't meet the quantum. We can offer you a percentage and then give you a, a discounted rate for the next two years or some sort of proactive approach instead of just, absolutely slamming the door in our faces. It it makes no sense.
4: Inside COVID-19,
0: from News. Our partners at Bloomberg report that nursing homes and assisted living facilities have been a hotbed for COVID-19 outbreaks. Because older people are particularly vulnerable, the facilities have had some of the deadliest outcomes during the pandemic. But some nursing homes have done much better than others at containing the virus. Bloomberg's Angelica Levito reports on a Seattle-area assisted living company that learned the lessons of the pandemic early and has managed to keep outbreaks from raging out of control. There's some lessons here for us in South Africa as infections begin mushrooming.
6: So I'll start by welcoming everybody. Thank you for coming. And uh, this is important work. We're fighting the invisible enemy. Um... Today's broad testing, we're testing all residents and all staff here at University House uh, Wallingford.
7: Stacey? Albert Menunga is the Regional Director of Health and Wellness at ERA Living. He is preparing to test residents at University House Wallingford, an assisted living facility in Seattle. Testing is a key tool to identifying people infected with the novel coronavirus in assisted living facilities and nursing homes. It might sound obvious now, but that was not always the case. A nursing home first exposed the U.S. to just how deadly the novel coronavirus could be. The virus swept through the Life Care Center of Kirkland in late February. It infected residents and employees alike. Forty-five deaths had been linked to the Washington facility. A short drive away in Seattle, alarm bells started going off at Era Living's Ida Culver House, Ravenna, in early March. One resident visited his doctor on March 4th. His earlier trip to an urgent care center did not resolve the unexplained confusion he was experiencing. The doctor prescribed antibiotics for what looked like bacterial pneumonia. On the way back to the Ida Culver house, the family called with a heads up. Suspicious, a nurse called Menunga.
6: So for me, that was a red flag. told my nurse that uh, let's talk to the family to see if we can actually request this resident not to enter the community, but proceed to the emergency room and be tested. At the time, we had no testing abilities anywhere.
7: Two days later, on March 6th, the hospital called. The resident tested positive.
6: We had to stay calm. We anticipated that it could potentially cause a lot of panic in many people around within and outside the community. So we had to come together and to seek some understanding of what we're dealing with and we agreed on sweeping protective measures to be able to potentially isolate anyone any kind of symptoms that we thought could be of concern. Residents
7: and employees were notified Workers who came in close contact with the patient were sent home. The dining room was closed. Meals were delivered to residents who were asked to stay in their apartments, but the virus was already lurking inside. Fever, cough, and other flu-like symptoms are the hallmarks of COVID-19. The first patient did not show any of those signals. He died on March 9th. Another resident was hospitalized on March 10th. There was no way to know how many others were infected. Arrow Living had already been exploring how it could test everyone, says Vice President of Operations, Nissan Harrell. It was challenging because at the time, the testing guidelines were very narrow.
4: And we felt the only way to know
0: if you have it is to test. which um, seems simple, but we felt really strongly that we had to get that done. And we had wanted it from the very beginning when we heard there was a positive test. Um, and we had been having conversations about that. But then once the resident passed away, we made phone calls at night and really pushed to, to have it done.
7: The next day, University of Washington researchers came in and tested all residents and employees. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Allison Roxby and her team were afraid an outbreak was brewing inside. I've participated in surveys in multiple congregate settings in King County, Washington, and we have seen many outbreaks that take off like wildfire. So having one patient positive in a community can quickly result in many positive patients if people are not uh, distancing appropriately and if they don't have adequate personal protective equipment or PPE. Menunga says he was not afraid, but he was prepared. I was prepared for
6: a potential widespread update because we didn't know that the COVID was in the community. Uh, nobody had restored symptoms. The gentleman that had it had not exhibited no signs. So now we wake up to a new reality that potentially we could have other people without symptoms. And so I was prepared to see in humble cases through that experience.
7: Roxby and her team at the University of Washington screened everyone for symptoms. They asked them to record anything out of the ordinary, like a cough or a fever. Then they swapped three of 80 residents and two of 62 workers tested positive. Some did not report any symptoms. They tested all residents again one week later just one more resident tested positive. The interventions worked. Roxby and her team shared the results in a study that was published in a medical journal and shared by the CDC. Her conclusion? Testing can catch infections that screening for symptoms can't. We were very hardened that despite having two patients in the facility uh, with confirmed coronavirus, that we did not see a facility-wide outbreak. And it suggested to us that when facilities follow all of the recommendations, it's possible to avoid a facility-wide outbreak.
0: And now, as promised, that quite brilliant expose by our partners at the Wall Street Journal on how New York blundered in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic, leading to thousands of unnecessary deaths. It's a harrowing tale of arrogance, complacency, and incompetence, providing some stark lessons for South Africa on what not to do as the pandemic gathers steam.
8: On March 2nd, one day after the first confirmed case of coronavirus in New York City, Governor Andrew Cuomo held a press conference.
4: We have the best healthcare system in the world here and uh, excuse our arrogance as New Yorkers. I speak for the mayor also on this point. We think we have the best healthcare system on the planet right here in New York.
8: Cuomo was getting at an idea that the system would work. Because of New York's public health establishment, the state wouldn't struggle to fight the virus like other places had.
4: So uh, when you're saying what happened in other countries versus what happened here, We don't even think it's going to be as bad as it was in other countries.
8: What followed this March 2nd press conference was the most harrowing public health crisis New York has seen in a century. To date, more than 20,000 people in New York City have died from coronavirus. That's one out of six deaths in the entire country. Our colleague Shalini Ramachandran has been working over the past months to answer
9: a question. What went so wrong? But People didn't die only from the coronavirus, but because we couldn't get to them in time, or there weren't enough people to help them, or there wasn't enough equipment to help them. Some people died because of a lot of things that could have been avoided.
8: Shalini and her colleagues talked to nearly 90 frontline healthcare workers, hospital administrators, and government officials. They reviewed emails, legal documents, and memos to understand the missed warning signs and subsequent chaos that many healthcare workers say led to unnecessary deaths. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Linebaugh. The first coronavirus case in the U.S. was reported in Washington state in January. But around two months later, when the virus officially spread to New
9: York... Officials were reluctant to shut down the biggest city in the country. New York reported its first coronavirus case on March 1st. And the day after that, Mayor Bill de Blasio tweeted that people can go see a movie, go on with their lives. A day later, Governor Cuomo said at that press conference that
8: the state's health care system was the best in the country and was ready to confront the coronavirus. But as cases in New York grew and Cuomo declared a state of emergency, the actions of New York's leaders started to splinter. And that was especially clear in deciding when to shut down.
9: So the politics involved are that Governor Andrew Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio have a long, contentious history. And during those crucial days when people were trying to figure out whether New York City should be locked down or not, they were often at odds with each other. I mean, one example of this is Mayor de Blasio said the city might go under a shelter in place order, which Governor Andrew Cuomo then dismissed. And being constantly at odds with each other helped sow the confusion.
8: So what was the turning point for New York leaders to stop waiting? When did it become clear that things were taking a turn for the worse?
9: So that was March 13th, when it became clear that there was community spread from one man in a New York City suburb. And at that point, the city realized we're, we're not planning for a crisis a few months from now. We're responding to one already
8: here. And just for comparison, in early March, at the same time period New York was feeling like they were well prepared, other American cities and states were taking action.
9: Yeah, and here's where the difference really shows. New York was remaining open even as its caseload was skyrocketing past where others were. So, for instance, California issued a statewide lockdown with 1,005 cases on March 19th, while New York remained open with 5,704 cases. And that's according to updated Johns Hopkins data.
8: Spokespeople for the city and state said they did everything they could once the risk of COVID became clear. The de Blasio spokeswoman said that, quote, ultimately, our hospitals withstood the pressure and our doctors and nurses delivered heroically. The crisis in New York only got worse as the virus spread out of control.
9: So it was becoming clear that New York City's caseload was spiking in a way that other places weren't. And it also started to become clear around March 20th when the ICUs of certain Queens hospitals were just starting to overflow. And doctors were saying, I haven't seen anything like this in all my time in ICU care.
8: Two days later, Cuomo put into effect a statewide shelter-in-place order. And in the weeks that followed, that chaos in the Queen's ICUs would hit more hospitals around the city, testing the health system at a scale it had never seen before, with a disease that the world was still trying to understand. As New York shifted into emergency mode, Cuomo ordered hospitals to increase capacity by 50 percent. But hospital executives were quick to point out that more space wasn't
9: their most pressing concern hospital executives said, increasing beds isn't the problem. We got to have the trained staff who can take care of these people, because it's not just any doctor or any nurse who can do something like this. They have to be trained in critical care. Respiratory therapists are the masters at mechanical ventilation, and there's only a limited number at each hospital.
8: What were the consequences of having too few staff in hospitals?
9: The main consequence was that there was a lack of patient care, and there was just so many patients there that they couldn't possibly give them adequate care. In some examples that we saw and reported on, one is just simply unattended deaths. People dying because they were just kind of lost in the system when one doctor had to oversee dozens of patients, and there's just no possible way they would be able to get to everybody. According to emails and interviews with healthcare workers in one operating room ICU at New York Presbyterian Columbia, respiratory therapists at times cared for over 80 patients a shift. A normal level is about 10 patients a shift. The staffers there were overworked and they weren't able to suction mucus out of the patient's lungs often enough, which resulted in patient complications. And there's also just lack of patient care that normally would happen in an ICU. You know, intubated patients' lips were bleeding. They developed sores on their backs from not being turned often enough. And the staffing shortages were so acute that, you know, one respiratory therapist at Elmhurst estimated that with more staffing and better equipment, they could have saved 30 to 40 percent of COVID patients who died there. In response to Shalini's reporting, the
8: city's public hospital system that includes Elmhurst and Bellevue said the system, quote, mobilized quickly to shift staff and equipment to the hardest hit hospitals. And New York Presbyterian defended its response to, quote, unprecedented challenges. Staffing
9: shortages also led to other problems. There are several cases we heard about of people sort of getting lost in the system and dying without anyone's knowing. And in one case at Brookdale University Hospital Medical Center, this is in Brooklyn, a family member called the ER to inquire about their mother in her 80s. And the ER doctor looked them up and realized that she had died two days prior. And he was saying this is happening daily. When you spoke with this Brookdale doctor, how did he say he felt? He was really upset. Doctors and nurses and the respiratory therapists, all these healthcare workers I talked to, were just devastated that they couldn't give the care that they felt these patients needed. And it was emotionally just breaking them to have to talk to these family members and say, Look, I'm sorry, your mom died two days ago. We don't know where she is. A Brookdale spokesman said the hospital staff, quote,
8: did their absolute best to provide care to those in need during this pandemic. And what did the hospitals say about these staffing shortages and the lack of care that they caused
9: so the hospitals typically said that they were trying to secure staffing earlier in February January and they said that they ultimately did bring in thousands of additional staff And they basically were saying, once we knew this was upon us, we tried our best to bring in people as fast as possible and try to train them. But they reiterated this was a crisis. This was something that, you know, wasn't foreseen.
8: The shortages wrought by coronavirus didn't stop at staffing. In fact, the shortage that got the most attention during the peak of the outbreak was ventilators. With cases surging in New York City, hospitals ran out of ventilators. And they had to borrow from state
9: and federal stockpiles. The stockpile ventilators doled out by the state, which came from both the state stockpile and the federal government, those were antiquated. They lacked the functionality needed to treat these patients, is what the healthcare workers said. They were at times faulty and led to patient complications like lung collapses, mucus plugs that cause you to sort of deoxygenate, and casualties. This was a big surprise to many of the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists who I talked to. For example, one respiratory therapist at New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan said that he documented 50 patients who died due to these inadequate state stockpile ventilators and due to improper ventilator settings by untrained staff. Did the hospital dispute this? New York Presbyterian said that the hospital received no such reports about ventilator malfunctions, but the public system said that any state ventilators were not ready to go and that the system had to do additional maintenance before they could be used on patients. What did the state say? The state said that they tested every ventilator before sending them to hospitals and received no complaints about faulty ventilators. There was another problem that
8: came up in the race to secure ventilators. Doctors figured out that ventilators weren't actually helping most patients recover.
9: So initially, doctors across New York City were ventilating patients early because of the focus from leaders from the medical community on ventilators. And what people started to realize is that most patients on ventilators were dying. They weren't getting off the ventilators. And many of the doctors across the hospital system said, we have to try to get these people better without putting them on a ventilator.
8: Instead of ventilators, doctors started relying on another treatment putting patients on oxygen. But this treatment required monitoring patients' oxygen levels. And many healthcare workers said the lack of staffing and needed equipment made that an especially
9: dangerous task. Just imagine a hospital crowded with people and with thin staff. You need monitors to be able to tell people, this person's crashing, this person needs help, but they just weren't there. This
8: situation especially came up because of how some patients can react to oxygen masks and they
9: can't get enough oxygen. When you're on supplemental oxygen and you have these masks on, at the point when you deoxygenate and you feel like you can't breathe, at that point, some of these patients, it's the reflex, they rip off their mask. They do it without knowing because they're in an altered mental state. And at that point, a healthcare worker needs to know that this person might be crashing. But if they don't know, they just die. We have reporting from at least eight New York City hospitals where doctors and nurses told us patients who were gasping for breath and weren't being properly monitored as they lay hooked up to oxygen died without anyone's knowing. One Elmhurst doctor told me that they personally knew of 10 such deaths, including one of a man in his 60s who had been improving up to that point.
8: A spokeswoman for the public system said it had enough monitors to track patients continuously. Another major problem with New York's response was the issue of patient transfers. Hospitals in the city were overwhelmed with the number of COVID patients coming in each day. But some hospitals, depending on their neighborhood or their funding,
9: were more strained than others. There were Pockets of New York City that were starting to get harder hit than others, for instance, Queens and the Bronx, where there are low income, diverse communities, they were getting really hard hit. And what hospitals at that point needed to do was transfer patients from those hospitals to places where they could be helped because those hospitals were getting overloaded.
8: In regular times, there's a system and protocol for how to transfer patients from one hospital to another. But because of the chaos during the peak of the pandemic, that system needed more government assistance to make it run. This led to another squabble between the de Blasio and Cuomo administrations.
9: City officials told us that they had wanted to set up a centralized evacuation hub that was previously used in emergencies like Superstorm Sandy, which would have helped transfer patients between private and public hospital systems and among them. And they said that twice the state denied the request A spokeswoman for the state said the city's centralized evacuation hub
8: wasn't designed for individual patient transfers. So the state created its own system for that purpose. But the state's program had problems. It could tell you when a bed was available, and it would supervise the transfer of a patient. But it didn't supervise the transfer of medical records so doctors would know what to do when that patient arrived.
9: The lack of coordination meant that hospitals on their own, and really it was doctors in the moment on their own, trying to figure out what to do with these patients, flooding the ERs, you know, sending them out to another hospital. And oftentimes patients would arrive with one foot in the grave, according to the doctors and nurses we talked to. And we heard several examples of patients arriving at Bellevue's ER, transferred from other hospitals, dying soon after they arrived. And is that because they were so sick? What went wrong there? It seems like what went wrong was that patients who were super critically ill, who normally wouldn't be transferred, were transferred in this crisis. And the problem was that they were too unstable to be transferred, and they would arrive without names or medical information. So the doctors at the receiving hospital didn't even know, has this person had these treatments? What are their names? The public hospitals said that only
8: the least sick patients were transferred and their personal information was in a centralized system. And state officials said their transfer system ultimately helped save lives. New York City's hospitals have largely emerged from the crisis at this point. At the peak, there were over 6,000 cases a day in the city. Now they're just a few hundred, a number that's manageable for the city's hospitals. But with all of its missteps, New York was also the first place in the country to deal with an outbreak of this magnitude, which means there's also a lot to be learned from its mistakes.
9: There are several states right now that are undergoing a surge and hopefully they don't get to where New York was. But given that it did happen here and given that the outbreak spread so fast. There are a lot of lessons to take away from how leaders dealt with it, how hospital administrators tailored their response in the moment, and also just how people can better prepare, how cities, states and hospital administrators and frontline workers can better prepare.
0: This has been episode 53 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.